Well, now we uh, come to a time in our service where we're going to be looking at God's Word. And if this is uh, your first time with us this fall, we are actually working our way through uh, the Gospel of John. And this past week, uh, Sabrina and myself and a few uh, people in our church, we were um, spending time with a Presbyterian pastor and teacher uh, named Scott Sauls. And Scott pastors this church in Nashville, Christ Presbyterian Church, and he was in town uh, really speaking to pastors in partnership with this organization called Serving Leaders. And so he was here on Thursday and here in Ironworks, and uh, we recorded the message that he had both on um, for our podcast, but also for the YouTube channel. And I really encourage you to spend some time uh, watching that. It's entitled Creating Cultures of Kindness in a Time of Outrage. And uh, there are a few times in the, uh, this, this sermon, it was quite um, pro- timely, um, that really, because uh, today's sermon is Jesus and our greatness or your greatness and so many things that Scott was hitting on was touching upon that and so I encourage you to go to our YouTube channel watch the the video or go to the our podcast and listen to it there today we are considering Jesus and your greatness and I'm going to be reading from John 7 verses 2 through 24 and you can follow along in your worship guide or you can follow along on the wall uh, behind me And so let's give our careful attention to God's word this morning. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a a good man, others said no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. About About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is trying to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. 
If, the, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's body, whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgments. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to Christ. Let me pray for us. Father God, we pray for your blessing. As we hear your word, we pray for your spirit to be working in our hearts, be working in our lives, helping us to see your word for our life, your word for this very moment and season that we are in. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. There was a man by the name of Henry. Henry, at this point in his career, career he was at the heights. He, there was no further up the corporate ladder he could go, so to speak. And if you looked at his resume, you would see that he taught at Yale. He taught at Harvard. He taught at Notre Dame. That's what he did for the past 20-some years. When he would travel, he would specifically travel to speak at conferences. People would come up to him, asking him to sign their books. He had students who would apply to his, these universities simply so they could stay with him. And th- there came a point in his life where he had to face a very challenging question. When you have reached the top of your field, where do you go from there? Henry, he was also a priest, and he left academia in order to go minister to who had both intellectual, mental, and physical disabilities. Perhaps you've read his work. His name is Henry Nowen. And within his life, there was a conflict, and he writes about this conflict very openly, where there is a desire for greatness. There's this tension, and this, to use some language from Martin Luther, there's this desire for glory, and, and it's being confronted with the cross. Specifically, Luther's language was that there's a theology of glory and a theology of cross. And our story this morning, coming from John's gospel, is getting at this dynamic. We see Jesus uh, and this conversation that he is having with his biological brothers, James and Jude, perhaps a few other brothers as well. And this specific moment in John's gospel follows John... Six. If you were with us last week, John 6 is when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and withdraws from them. He goes to the other side of the lake. He really disappears. He hides from them. The consequence of that is that the 5,000 decide, some of them, many of them decide not to follow him anymore. They're quest- and others who are remaining are questioning who is Jesus. And so all of this to say the least, frustrates Jesus' brothers. And so they are saying to Jesus, you need to reveal yourself right now. If you are who you really say you are, you need to show off to the world. And so it frustrates them. And this really helps us understand what this text is about. This This passage is about our greatness. It's about Jesus and our greatness. And so the question that I want to explore this morning is, what does it mean to be great? What does it mean to be great? And for outline purposes, I'm going to use that Luther language of a theology of glory and a theology of cross to help us understand this. But we see this theology of glory 
come up for us in verses 3 to 5 and also verse 18. But just to uh, be more situated in text, this is the Feast of the Booths. The Feast of the Booths. Feast of Booths. And within the Jewish religious calendar, which had a lot of different feasts, a lot of different festivals. Every single Sabbath was meant to be a, a, a feast and festival as well. But this particular feast is, is on, the, on the calendar. It's the most, the most celebratory festival within their calendar. People would go on top of their homes uh, to the roof. They would create tents, and they would live in the tent for the entire week. And it was something they would do to remember Israel's time in the wilderness years where they were traveling in the wilderness for 40 years. And so this festival is focusing not only, not really on the fact that Israel was wandering the desert. It was this is a feast that's focusing on God's provision to his people, and it coincided with the harvest time. That's, so it's called the Feast of Booths, the, feed of, the Feast of the Tents, so to speak. And so in order to celebrate it, everyone would go to Jerusalem to celebrate. And if you look at John's Gospel, so many of these miracles and teachings that Jesus is doing occur on feasts and festivals. But Jesus would always be there. Jesus would always be there. And so it could be it could be Passover, it could be something else. Could, and, but so in so many ways, his brothers are saying to him, let's go to Jerusalem. And noticing Jesus' habits, you'd be like, yeah, he'll be there. But Jesus pushes back because his brothers did not only say, let's go to Jerusalem. They, they don't, they're not saying, let's go to Jerusalem to worship God. They have this alternate motive going on within their hearts. They're not encouraging Jesus to go worship God. They're not saying, Jesus, go be with God's people. They're saying, promote yourself. Make a highlight reel. You should be talk. Get out on the campaign trail. It because, verse 3, because no one works in secret if he wants to be known openly. Verse 3. And so as you we've been working through John's gospel, we know that Jesus has been working. He has been teaching. He just taught 5,000 people. So he, they're not saying just get just Go about your ministry. No, they're saying that his methods and his should change. But Jesus has been working. And yes, he has been working in some ways in secret. He's been working in hidden ways. And so when the crowd, just in John 6, when the crowd was about to make him king, Jesus withdrew and hid himself. And his family, his brothers, are frustrated with that hiddenness. They're bothered by the fact that Jesus is not going out there and seeking the limelights. He's not seeking the spotlights. It's time for him to get on with it. The time is now. Reveal yourself. Seize the day. Carpe diem. YOLO. You only live once. See, this is the world's understanding of greatness. That if you're going to be somebody, you have to promote yourself. You have to show up. And this is the air that we breathe. And so one commentator called it successism. This is the air that we breathe. But the problem is that all the greatest battles take place in the smallest moments in our lives. And so this moral drama that we see within this in our in the world and even in our hearts can go on. 
Because while we as Christians, we may say we are pursuing Jesus' fame and his glory, but in the everyday moments, when, the, when it comes to the tiny decisions of the day, we're pursuing our own greatness. There's this conflict at work within our lives that we can look at these brothers and we should see ourselves here. Our hearts are truly deceptive. And so Paul David Tripp, in his book, Quest for More, he, he lists many diagnostic questions to help us understand our own hearts so that we can be more self-aware. Here are a few of the diagnostic questions. Are you self-focused? Whose good drives your daily conversations, decisions, and actions? Self-righteousness. Whose reputation empowers you to face the day? Self-satisfaction. Whom are you trying to satisfy? Self-reliant. Who do you lean on? Self-rule. Whose rules mean the most to you? These are just some diagnostic questions to ask of our own hearts because every single one of us is desiring to be great in our own ways. Will Smith, he's one of America's greatest actors. There was a 10-year period that if Will Smith was in a movie, it was a guaranteed blockbuster. Perhaps you remember Independence Day or iRobot or I Am Legend. But then this movie After Earth came around, and it was an utter devastating failure. And so this magazine Variety interviewed him, and here are Will Smith's words. When I was 15, my girlfriend cheated on me, and I decided then and there that if I was number one, in other words, if I was great, no woman would ever cheat on me. All I have to do is make sure that no one is better than me, and I'll have the love that my heart yearns for. And I never realized that and moved into a mature way of looking at the world, my art, and love until the failure of this movie. When I had to accept that it is not a good motivation for my art or source of love. When I received the box num office numbers the following Monday, I was devastated. But then I received a phone call that my father had cancer. My failure was put into perspective viciously. And so what Will Smith is being honest about is that his desire for greatness does not prepare him for suffering. And when he suffered in that moment, his perspective was changing. But to continue with his, this interview, that Monday started a new chapter in my life, a new concept. Only love is going to fill that hole. You can't win enough. You cannot have enough money. You cannot succeed enough. There is not enough. The only thing that will ever satisfy that existential thirst is love. And I just remember that day when I made that shift from wanting to be from I made the, that day I made the shift from wanting to be a winner to wanting to have the most powerful, deep, and beautiful relationships I could possibly have. That's Will Smith. He's having this incredible self-awareness about his own heart because of Devastating failure and suffering. So it was Bono who asked, what kind of hole exists in your heart when you need to have 70,000 people scream, I love you, in order to feel fulfilled? That was Bono. But how would you answer that question? 
So here we see that Smith is offering insight into our hearts, that we hustle, we aspire for greatness in order to be seen, in order to be loved, and to be noticed. And parents, you can understand this. That all of a sudden, my son is now swinging from monkey bar to monkey bar to monkey bar and doing cartwheels. And my other son is beginning to speak, and it's awesome. And I'm saying, this is great. Please keep it up. So parents, you can understand that our, our children want to be known. And it's, as parents, it's one of our jobs to com- affirm that within them. But we can also think that's how we all, as adults, function in life. And, and we apply that to God. But the gospel reality is that we do not need to do anything in order to be loved. The gospel reality is that we do not need to achieve greatness to be noticed. We do not need to become more lovable in order to be loved. The gospel reality is that we are loved because of Jesus Christ, not because of any greatness or hustle that we may have. That's the gospel for us, and it it challenges our desire in so many ways, for greatness. But there's a, some, another angle that's going on here, and to really bring this even to think about ministry, because Jesus' brothers are frustrated with Jesus' ministry methods. They wanted the flashy, they wanted the, the flashy, the promotion, the popularity, the crowd, the statistics, the status, and more. And in America, we see this. I can show you an ad for a church, and this is horrific. It was a church plant, and the caption simply said that we are the movement that God has been waiting for. Welcome to America. We want name recognition. We want applause. And so why? This, do we want, do we, like in ministry, do we provide statistics when we write prayer letters? Perhaps you do that. Do you do that to celebrate what God's doing or to celebrate what you're doing? And we need to actually remember something about Jesus, that Jesus left the 99 to pursue the one. All of heaven rejoices over the salvation of one sinner. See, the, what I'm describing for all of us as we think about our greatness is what Martin Luther called the theology of glory. Theolo- theologies of glory seek to minimize difficult times, painful moments, and tries to defeat and really hurry through our suffering. In Luther's own words, the theologian of glory does not know God's hiddenness in suffering. Therefore, he prefers ease over suffering, glory over the cross, strength over weakness, and the ends justify the means. See, the simple impact of sin's reality on our hearts is that our greatness, our ambition, can actually turn into a distraction from God. And so Brennan Manning, in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, he shares a story. And it comes out of left field. A man says that we are amidst a revival. Oh, how so, you may ask. Well, 500 people left the church this week. That's not how we think about life. And the disciples are finding themselves in that exact same moment. That 5,000 people are talking about leaving Jesus. Some of them have left Jesus already. And so they are saying, let's get a move on. Oh, because we can't lose your people. That's what's going on in the brothers' lives. They are seeing, they're being confronted with this theology of glory. 
within their own, their own hearts. And this brings us to the second point, theology of the cross. We see this in verses 6 through 10 and also 18. Jesus, Jesus tells his brothers, you go up to the feast and I'm going to stay here for my time has not yet come. So he flat out says no. I'm not going to seek the spotlight. I'm not going to promote myself. I'm not getting on TikTok. That's what Jesus says. But, and, but whenever Jesus says the, the following language, that my time has not yet come or my, the hour is not at, at hand, he's actually saying it's not time for me to reveal who he is. It's not time for him to reveal that he is the Lamb of God who comes to, to take away the sin of the world. It's not time for him to reveal himself as the promised prophesied Messiah. It's not time for him to reveal that he is the king who is going to restore all things in this world. And certainly Jesus is actually doing that quietly and in hidden, like uh, thinking at the, at just before John 3, it says that Jesus did not entrust himself to, to, to the crowd, but he did actually entrust himself to his, the disciples. Like there's a point to all of Jesus' miracles. There's a point to his teachings that all of these things are actually signs and explanations of the kingdom. And Jesus is actually saying things about the world they live in. He says, point blank, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about the truth of this world. That this, wor the wor this world's works are evil. So what Jesus actually ends up doing is that he stays where he is and his brothers go up to the, the feast because Jesus actually wants to teach his brothers. Jesus wants to teach his brothers that he's not concerned with success or hype, that his greatness is a different way to be great. And church tradition actually tells us how their stories end. Like, According to church uh, tradition, that Jesus had four brothers. Two of those brothers we know within Scripture as James and, and Jude. You should know those names. James wrote the epistle and of James. And so James, whom we see later on in the book of Acts, after moderating the, the Jewish council, uh, he was later beheaded by King Herod Agrippa. Jude, uh, who wrote his own letter, Jude was martyred alongside Simon. Simon the Zealot. But they're not the only ones who suffer this way. Consider Paul, the apostle. He, his letters to Ephesus, Coloss his letters of Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians were actually written while he was imprisoned. John, the guy who wrote this gospel, this biography of Jesus, along with 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation, he was exiled. See, all of these men, all these apostles, they all learned the lesson that Jesus is teaching his brothers here. That our greatness is actually tied to our humiliation. Jesus says this to each and every single one of us. Pick up your cross and follow me. Those are his words. And that as we pick up our crosses, as we follow Jesus, as we deny ourselves, there is a purpose to our suffering. That each and every single one of us has dark nights of our, of our souls. We look at the Psalms, and the, the Psalms are filled with laments. Israel wandered the wilderness for 40 years. See, friends, we are tested. We are tried. And these moments of testing, the trials, the suffering that we go through is the school 
of discipleship. Suffering teaches you that you are not the person that you think you are, and suffering teaches you that you're not the person that you want to be. And so, again, to borrow Luther's language of a theology of the cross, that Christians are theologians of the cross. We rejoice. We should rejoice amidst suffering. We should glory in the cross. We should boast in our weaknesses. And we should be content, not at the podium, not in the spotlight, but we should be content on the margins. See, Jesus' success and is deeply and intimately tied to his death. Jesus is only exalted. He is only recognized as the King of kings and the Lord of lords until after he died upon the cross. He is only ascended. He only ascends to the right hand of God the Father until after he was tossed into another man's grave. See, what we find in the life of Jesus is that the cross is not a loss. The cross is not a loss. And when we grasp this, our life changes. So one woman whose life was completely turned upside down by a husband's sin and scandal, she said that she would not change anything because their marriage was sweeter because her husband's sin came to light. When we grasp this, our life changes And we celebrate the cross because Jesus' death was the death we should have died. And so contrary to the one book title, this popular book title, that this life is not our best life now. This life for Christians is our worst life. This is the worst it will ever get. And so we rejoice because Jesus' death secures this life everlasting for us. It is our imperishable inheritance. It cannot erode or dissolve or go away. But instead of boasting in our strengths, which may be your reputation or success, we actually can boast in our weaknesses. And so some of you are fans of this thing called the Enneagram. The Enneagram, I'm a three. The three is called the achiever. So I need to just look at my own heart right now. Because one of the big, okay, you're laughing, means you know the Enneagram. To un- unpack that, the, this is one of the biggest lessons I am learning right now because we don't boast in our strengths, we boast in our weaknesses. When we boast in our weaknesses, what we do right then and there is that we actually put a spotlight on what God is doing. When we put a spotlight on what God is doing, we will be confronted, yes, with our we'll see what God is doing in our lives. And so to quote Scott Sauls from earlier this week, this is what he said. And he, a charlatan, so one, a pretender, a hypocrite, a charlatan is shy about God and boastful about self. Because following Jesus means we need to flip that. That following Jesus means that we need to be shy about ourselves and boastful about God. This is what John the Baptist was saying and describing for us. That Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Because when we boast in how good we are, we will completely obscure the work of God in our lives. And this is the way of the cross. This is the way of the cross. 
is noticeably different from the ways our world pursues greatness. The Apostle Paul put it this way, that the cross is foolish to the Greek and a stumbling block to the Jew. So going back to our question, what is greatness? And I'll end with this story. Drew Jennings Graham, he was a young missionary. He was 20-something, right out of college. And he goes to Bolivia to work with Paz and Esperanza, which means peace and hope in Spanish. And the missionary culture in Bolivia was this, that if you were white, you had authority. It did not matter about your, edu- your age, your education, etc. None of that mattered. If you were white, you had power. And this is in his own words. They, they being the Bolivians, see a white guy with a Bible coming into their community, and they give him visible and spiritual authority. Even though we've never met, as soon as I would step into a situation, I'm the one with power And that has always been their experience. So Jennings Graham, he made an intentional paradigm shift in his own mind. That, And this is some of the shifts that the people he was serving began to see. That he could have stayed in hotels on his trips, but he chose to sleep on the streets. He could have enjoyed air conditioning in cars when they would travel or move about towns, but he chose to walk. He could have bought meals. But when his counterparts were only eating one meal a day, a meal of rice, even with maggots in them, he only ate the one meal a day with them. And so when his team was planning church conferences in rural Bolivia, he would ask his team at one point to stand up along with their urban counterparts from the cities in Bolivia and to leave the room so that these local rural pastors would be able to plan their own conference. And the result was the fir- this was the first church conference in Bolivia that was planned for and led by Bolivians themselves. This was only in the past 10 years. And so, friends, this is the way of the cross. When you think about the way of the cross and specifically Jesus' life, that God the Son humiliated himself. He did not prioritize his status to be equal with God the Father, he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. He was born into poverty. Jesus never left his home nation. His perhaps, it depends how you want to look at it, his home state even. Jesus never traveled to a major city. When he died, he was falsely accused. He faced a rigged trial. He was innocent, yet people crucified him. And all his friends abandoned him. His best friends denied him. He endured the misery of sin and life and death to the fullest extent. And then upon the cross where he died for your sins, when he died for my sins, what occurred upon the cross is that he faced God's wrath that was deserved for us. Because of the cross, we we are able to say our sins are forgiven because that's what Jesus did there. And after he died upon the cross, what happened next? He was, th- he was buried in another man's tomb. That is humiliating, and God the Son did that for you. And the result of this is actually his exaltation. That God raised him from the dead, and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And where he proclaims, behold, I'm making all things new. See, it's actually through Jesus' humiliation 
that he is great, that he is exalted. It's through serving that God, Jesus is great. And he calls upon us to be servants as well. But because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, the way of the cross, the result of the cross is life everlasting for all who believe in him. And this is very different from the greatness of our, of our world because the way of the cross is true greatness. Let's pray.